So um, I was given the topic today, what does God want? So just a small topic, uh, you know, nothing heavy. What does God want? In fact, I asked this question when I was really a little kid. I, um, I, I, I decided that if there was a God, I guess the next logical question is, there. well, what does he want? And um, as a kid, I was, I was made to go to church. And um, it wasn't that I came from a Christian family or anything. My, my dad best uh, described himself as somewhere on the spectrum of atheist through to agnostic. Agnostic is just some kind of fancy word that basically means if there is a God, well, he can't be known. So, um, but he thought it was a good idea that his kids went to church and learnt some morals, I guess. Mum went to church because she, um, she had a bit of a messy life and um, she found a lot of solace in the church. And so my sister and I would have to go to church every morning, um, every Sunday morning, and uh, I remember I had to go to Sunday school. So if anyone, um, Sunday school was basically like kids' church these days. And so I went off to Kids Church and I learnt lots of Old Testament stories. So Old Testament is the part in the Bible, there's like, um, I don't know, 39-odd books, I can't remember off the top of my head, of um, the times before Jesus came to the earth. And so I used to hear all these stories and I remember thinking, I wonder what God wants. I know, he wants us to sacrifice because I'd read all these amazing stories about sacrifices. So I don't know how old I was, but I decided I'll give this one a crack. And so, so I thought, well, I, was, I, I think I must have been nine because I was wise enough that it should not include my pocket money, okay? So it didn't include that because God wouldn't want that, of course. And so I thought, I know, I've got a plum. You see, what happened is I lived in the Wairapa and we had a bit of land and we had lovely fruit trees and stuff. I thought, God would like a plum because he made them, right? So I got this plum and I strategically put it on the back lawn. We had a big flat lawn that's not Auckland down there, um, you can afford land down there. And so we put, I put this plum strategically in the centre of this flat lawn because I'd also worked out that God wasn't going to take my plum in great pillars of fire while I was watching. So I needed to be able to sneak up on him and catch him in the act. So I put this plum on the middle of this flat lawn and I snuck round the back to the porch and I poked my head round the side to see if God wanted my plum. Nothing happened. And I must have got distracted and I must have given up. But mysteriously the next day, that plum was nowhere to be found. Um, so maybe God God wanted a plum. So when I became older, I actually did become, um, I had this experience with Jesus where he became very real to me. And the joy in my heart was unmistakable. It was between light and day, a significant difference in my life. And I thought everyone needed to know about this. So I went to high school, it's about year 12, um, sixth form for us older folk. And, um, and yeah, that is year 12, isn't it? So um, I went to school and I was telling everyone, you need to become a Christian, you need to meet Jesus. And they looked at me and said something along the lines of, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to become a nun or something? And for the first time in my life, I was absolutely really scared because what if God wants me to do something I actually don't want to do? What if he wants me to become a social reject or one of those really weird people? You know? And I thought, well, what does God want? And then... I, uh, later on, I um, kind of got past those fears, and I ended up going to a three-year ministry course, three-year um, internship to become a, a church leader or a pastor, and, um, and I had to do some Bible college studies. 
And in one of those, we had to do church history. And then I had to learn about the monastic period. Anyone heard of the monastic period? So the word monastic is to do with monks and nuns. And essentially what happened is actually centuries back, people would model off people like Elijah and John the Baptist, and they would go off in solitude and live in the desert because they thought that's what God wanted them to do. But in the Middle Ages, they tended to do that in groups, and they formed monasteries, hence the word monastics and convents, which were for nuns. Don't worry, this is not about convents and nuns today. I can, I can assure you. But um, what they did is they thought that God wanted them to live separate from the world and to seek him. And they took very serious oaths of obedience and solitude and poverty and chastity. And they would just separate themselves from the world and live in communities all by themselves. In fact, they did a lot of amazing and credible work. In fact, one of the credible things that they did, and a lot of people will be pleased about this, because they lived in such poverty they actually didn't have clean running water and it's, to, it's thought that the monks actually introduced, uh, created beer for the first time. Um, so there you go. <laughs> we all get to enjoy that. Not that I like beer particularly. Um, um, but they did lots of work in compassion. In fact, we're really indebted to them around education throughout the known world. But they had a sector within the monastic period where they thought that God wanted them to pay for their sins in quite a physical way. And what they would do is, it was called asceticism. It's a big word that I can hardly say. But what they would do is they would do stuff physically to themselves because they felt that God wanted them to keep punishing themselves for the sin that they did. And there was a real famous guy. In fact, he did lots of great stuff. But there was St. Dominic, and he lived in um, about 1200. And what he did is he would get himself up three times a night and whip himself with iron chains one for his own sin, one for the sins of uh, the world, and one for the sins of the souls dying in purgatory. Is this what God wants? Others thought that because Jesus uh, stayed up all night, you read this in the book of John, he stayed up all night before he called his disciples, and so maybe God wants us to stay up all night, and some of these these um, monks and nuns would just go through significant rhythms of prayer right through the night because they thought that's what God wants. Is this what God wants? So uh, we look back on this question, what does God want? And we see it even in the Old Testament. Um, there's a guy called Micah. He was a prophet. And um, Matt talked about prophets last week. And this guy, there's a book named after him in the Old Testament. And you see, they were asking this question, what does God want back in 737 BC? Because it says, should I come before him with burnt offerings? What Should I come before God with a hundred year old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand male sheep? Will he be pleased with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should I give my first child for the evil that I've done? Should I give my own very child? Is this what God wants? It's a question that humankind have been asking for a really long time. In Jesus' day, there was another example of people asking Jesus, what does God want? And in Matthew, we read about an expert of the law. Ever come across an expert in the law? These are people that like to catch you up on technicalities. 
I have worked in government and I've come across a few people <laughs> who are good at technicalities and experts in the law. But here was one that was an expert in God's law. And he comes up to Jesus and he says um, to him, it says, one Pharisee who was an expert of the law in, in the law of Moses asked Jesus this question to trap him. Teacher, which command in the law is the most important? I.e., of all the hundreds of laws, Jesus, which one should I really pay attention to? Which one do you, what do you want me to do? What is it that you want? And we know that the intent of this question is ill. It's not a good intended question because he said it to trap Jesus. He wanted to discredit him. But Jesus cuts right through the rhetoric cuts right through the politics, and he answers, the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and most important command. And the second one is like the first, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the writings of the prophets, i.e. the whole Old Testament, depend on these two commands. So Jesus cuts it right through and starts talking about love. And we see that Paul does a very similar thing. Now, Paul um, was slightly after Jesus, and he um, recorded in the Bible. He was responsible for taking the a gospel message and forming and um, planting many churches throughout Europe and Asia. And he said a similar thing. He said, be under obligation to no one. The only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the whole law. And Paul also actually was a Pharisee. He was an expert in the law. So he was actually qualified to say this. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else, and any others besides are summed up in this one command. And any others besides. And there were a lot of laws. So what does God want? We're beginning to see... A, a theme here. Paul continues, if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. So what is love? Big question. I remember in 1981 being a very young child, I just have to say, and um, Prince Charles got engaged to Lady Diana Spencer. And he had only been going out for her for 13 years, uh, 13 times, had 13 dates, and then they got engaged, you know, the future king of England. And there was a famous media interview with Prince Charles, and the media said, because everyone was besotted with this new princess-to-be, and um, they said to Prince Charles, so Prince Charles, are you in love? And he had this very telling retort. He said, yeah, well, whatever love is, or whatever being in love is. What is love? Well, if you watch reality TV, it would tell you it's something to do with the absence or the presence of goosebumps, it seems. If you ever watch reality TV, it seems to be, you know, you've got the feeling or you don't have a feeling or you get a rush of blood to the head and then um, that's love. But actually, the Bible has a lot to say about love. And if I was to try and recount that all today, we'd be here a long time, which is something you probably don't want to do. But... Um, these are just a few things that I've picked out. This is how we know what love is, and this is from the book of 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his life for us. 
This is how we know what love is. Christ gave his love for us. We too then ought to give our lives for one another. It's pretty simple. The Bible also says that God is love. It's not that love is God, it's God is love. And do you notice from that scripture that there's a real call to action? Love is not this passive thing. We just fall back into a couch-like position and say, bring it to me. You know, love is a call to action. Christ's love caused him to lay down his life. And then he says, you ought to go and do the same. Not quite as comfortable as we'd like to think. It's not passive. What is love? There's another scripture in Romans 5.8. It says, but God has shown us how much he loves us. It was why we were still sinners that Christ died for us. He told us what love is before we even had any idea what love was. And before we had any reason to expect love, he died for us. Before we could give him anything, before there was any exchange that we could try and perform, God just loved us. See, we understand what love is by looking who Jesus is. He is the epitome of love. He initiated love. He loved us first. He is the template, if you will, or the blueprint of true love. And we are invited into that love. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We're invited into his love. How much does he love us? Well, that last scripture told us that he um, he loved us because he died for us while we were still sinners. But you see, we don't love in a vacuum. We love because God has shown us what love is first. And one of my most favorite books in the Bible is the book of John. And in the book of John, there is an intimacy that we see recorded that the other similar gospels, there's four gospels in the New Testament, which is the part that talks about from Christ and onwards. And um, there's four, the first four books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all tell a very similar story about the life of Jesus. But John just has a totally different feel because John had quite a close relationship with Jesus. And we seem to get a capture of the intimacy and the insight that John had into Jesus's life. And we see this in a prayer that John records in John 17. Now, in John 17, we've got Jesus praying to the Father before he's about to demonstrate his love by laying down his life. It's just before he goes to the cross. And here's Jesus's prayer that John records. And this is Jesus talking in first person. He says, I in them. So this is Jesus saying, I in believers. Jesus is in us. I am in them. So, and you are in me. So, Father, you are in me. This is Jesus talking, and I am in them. So that they may be completely one, in order that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. You know, I've read that many times, but do you know what I've missed? Is that that scripture is telling us that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. And I have missed that nearly my whole life. So I thought while I was preparing this, I'd better go and check a few translations just to see if I've, you know, got just the lucky one. But it does say that you check it out in John 17, that the Father loves us as he loves the Son. So his love for us is immense. His love for us is complete. See, God is the initiator and the precedent of pure love because God is holy also. 
So his love is pure and it demands purity. We experience it in Jesus and then we get to give it away. That's what love is. His love pursues us. And if you were at church over the last few weeks, you would have seen Matt do the gospel of chairs up here. And, that, and it's just a demonstration of God's pursuing love for us. So how does God want us to love him? So he's loved us first, and it's like we're invited. He's given us the template of love, and it's like we're invited to share in that. And from that, we get to love him back, and we get to love out as well. So what should this love look like, our love for God? Once again, that book of John has a really great story. And this is one when Jesus is talking to a woman at the well. Now, in Jesus' time, you didn't talk to women and you certainly didn't talk to a Samaritan woman because the Samaritans were an inferior race. You did not share utensils with them. And why that's important is because Jesus is thirsty when he meets this woman and she is drawing water out of a well. And so for her, him to go up to this woman and say, I'm thirsty, give me a drink, and this is what happens in John 4, was the really wrong thing to do. And what Jesus does is he starts engaging with this woman he should probably never talk to, and he starts revealing his love for her and revealing himself, unveiling who he is to her. And they start talking about a few religious differences, you know, where do you worship? And, you know, and she says, well, you Jews, you, you worship in Jerusalem, but we worship on this hill. And Jesus, once again, just like he talked to the Pharisee who asked him to trap him up, he cuts right through the rhetoric, through the religion, and says this most amazing thing. It says, who, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is looking for. Those that are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. You see, when I was that little kid having to go to church because my parents made me to, my mum and my dad used to dress my, myself and my sister up in pretty little dresses. We had to match. And the other thing is that I was given strict instructions. I was told, Lee, you must not eat all the food because my mum couldn't cook very well. And when there was morning tea at church, you zoomed in because it was very good. And I was told, do not be greedy. Do not fidget. When people look you in the eye, you look back and you respond to their questions. And I was given all this good parenting stuff. And it is good parenting stuff. I, I mean, I tell my son to behave too. But what I also, the message I got is that I had to be someone different when I went to church. I had to be the good behaved person before God would accept me. But what Jesus is saying in that scripture is that actually he wants you just the way you are. He wants the unedited, the uninstagrammed version of yourself, the raw the natural, the willing, the who you are, not the dressed up, well-behaved person you put on before you go out. I've thought that um, why would God lay down his life if all he wanted was to create a Christian religion? If that's all it is, so he can send us diplomatic messages at times that we need it, why would he bother? Why would you lay yourself down just so that we can respond with rituals? He wants our hearts. He wants us. That's what love does. It gives itself away so that there's a genuine meeting of hearts and minds. 
He gave himself to us, and we get to give ourselves away. So this love stuff sounds great, doesn't it? I hear a lot about love, and it is a popular, it's a very popular topic in church, and, and so it should be. It's very important, but I think we can forget that love isn't just a passive thing, because God's love cost him everything. And if we are to love God, it's going to cost us everything also. And I don't know if we talk about that too much. You see, his love wasn't cheap. Jesus said this. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Haven't heard that one for a while. You know, that's not the most comfortable verse to put up there. Because what were her commandments? You know, and, and, and how does this work? You know, don't obey the law. Do you obey the law? You know, this gets a little confusing. But you see, we get to do what Jesus gets, has done. This love isn't just us sitting back and taking it all in. It's also living our lives in response to it. Dallas Willard, one of my favourite writers, wrote this. He said, The idea that you can trust God and not intend to obey him is an illusion. You can no more trust Jesus and not intend to follow him than you could trust your doctor or auto mechanic and not intend to follow their advice. If you do not intend to follow their advice, you simply don't trust them. So one of the ways we get to see if we love God is having a look at our lives. It's the litmus test. It's not to say we have to be perfect, but we don't get to just love God and do things our own way as well. You see, Jesus did what he saw the Father doing. He was obedient unto death, the scripture says. And we get to do what Jesus does. Sounds pretty simple, but it's not actually a small ask. You see, and if you're not sure what Jesus did, those four gospels I mentioned, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just have a read. You get to see what Jesus was like, how he lived and breathed and ate and did life. And that's what we get to do, and it's exciting, and it's abundant life. But it doesn't come cheap. First John 3 says, Love should not be just words and talk. If it's true love, then it will show itself in action. James 2 says something similar. Jesus said something else. He says, If people want to follow me, they must first give up the things they want, deny themselves, set aside their own interests. Ooh, that one hurts, doesn't it? They must be willing to give up their lives, take up their cross daily and follow me. This is what God wants. He wants us to love him. This is what it looks like. How do we work this one out? On one hand, you've got Jesus saying, look, it's not about following laws. It's not about keeping all the commandments. It's about accepting my love and giving it away. And then on the other hand, you're telling me what? To obey all my commands? You know, how, how does this work? Is this where we get out St. Dominic's chains and whip ourselves back into obedience? Is that how it works? C.S. Lewis says this, Christ himself describes the Christian way as very hard, sometimes as very easy. He says, take up your cross. In other words, it's like going to be beaten to death in a concentration camp. And next minute, he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He means both. 
So how do we get to deny ourselves? You know, some people take the ultimate road and they actually do physically lay down their lives to Jesus. Um, how I ha- Obviously, I haven't done that because um, here I am. But often it seems to be demonstrated with how we actually live our lives in relationship with others. It's those very small things when we're pushing to get our own way in life and we realise actually we need to give, set ourselves aside and put someone else in front of them. You know, it doesn't come easy. It's sometimes we have to give up on our own way. We've got to give up meeting our own needs and this crazed plan we've got to get more and get more and sometimes it's about giving more. It could be doing kind things when the person you're doing kind things simply doesn't actually deserve it. It could, by, it could be by being patient. It could be by saying sorry. It could be by steps of repentance. It could be by giving time. It could be by giving money. It could be by restoring broken relationships. You see, Jesus wants us to act in ways that are loving. It could be by putting yourself on a roster to set up church and foregoing that Sunday flat white. Um, Eugene Peterson says this, every day I put love on the line. I love this. This is a fantastic quote. Every day I put love on the line. There is nothing I'm less good at than love. I am far better in competition than in love. I am far better in, at responding to my instincts and ambitions than I, and to get ahead and make my mark than I'm at figuring out how to love one another. I am schooled and trained in acquisitive skills in getting my own way. And yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I can do very clumsily. I open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving and daring to believe that failing in love is far better than succeeding in pride. You see, we get to do this. As we learn what love looks like by pursuing God, he then works in our hearts by his spirit, not by St. Dominic's chains or a whole set of rules, but he works in our hearts and he brings love out of us as we work in that freedom of walking in the spirit. And that's where the freedom comes. Yes, there are things we need to do that will hurt in obeying, obeying Jesus but it comes naturally by walking in his spirit. One of the hardest lessons I ever had to experience in in obeying God in love came um, in a period in my life after my mum died. So I had, um, this is about 1993, and my mum had died, and I had been married for eight years to this guy, and we had met when I was doing that um, when I was doing that intern pastors course when I was learning about the monastics back then, and we um, had met. He was this dynamic Christian guy, uh, had giftings. Oh my goodness, he could memorise whole books of the Bible, off pat. You know, books of Revelation, the book of Galatians, and significant passages in Hebrews. He could preach. He was a youth pastor. He was amazing. 
And we met and we got married and, um, and it was fine. And then eight years on, I was um, dealing with the death of my mother and I was down six weeks after, or four weeks, something like that, after my mother died. I was with my brother and sister in the wire wrapper and we were packing up her stuff because dad had died earlier and so that was the last thing. We were packing up the house, getting it ready for sale and I remember picking up the phone to call my husband and I immediately knew something was seriously wrong. He was at home with another woman and um, apparently this was symptomatic of a life of disobedience he'd been having with some habits on the internet. And because he had not decided to follow through on being obedient with that, and I'm not judging him, but, you know, when we walk in disobedience, it just bears other fruit that doesn't become very helpful. And I went through a very terrible period, and I remember trying to wait and pray, and wait for reconciliation, and um, it ended up where it became very clear that this wasn't going to reconcile, and even though that's what the intent was, it just wasn't going to happen. And I remember the day when a very wise Christian woman said to me words I never thought I'd put in the same sentence, and she said, Lee, you have to, apply, you have to now go about getting a Christian divorce. Two words I would never put in the same sentence. And now a divorce is a very tricky and complex issue. I'm in no way advocating divorce today, and I'm in no way advocating that people should stay in difficult relationships that are violent or whatever. I'm just simply telling you my story. And I remember God laying on my heart what that might look like. Because I was very hurt, I'd lost friends, we were youth pastors in this church, he was an elder, because women couldn't be elders in those days, and, um, and there was this amazing fall from grace, and you know, I did all the right things, and he, you know, he publicly made a spectacle of us. And not only that, I lost my marriage. And I remember God saying to me when it was about navigating the whole process of forgiveness, that God started telling me a few things. And he said to me that what love looks like in this situation, Lee, is that even though your husband's sins were very out there for everyone to see and you look so much like the good person in this, that you prayed and that you waited, that his very public sin was no different than any private sin that I might have in my own heart. Any private sin of arrogance, wasn't I good, or self-righteousness, or any pride, any wanting to extract the most I can get to pay back, any loss of reputation I'd suffered, that any pride in my own heart, the hidden sins in my heart were just this worse or just as bad as any public sin that he had. And that, to be honest, we were just the same people just needing a God full of grace and forgiveness. And that platform really helped me to navigate forgiveness. One other thing God showed me was that the road he had travelled was precarious at best, and that did not require judgment from me. It required generosity, and it required a heart full of compassion. 
Do you think I came up with that myself? No. You see, this whole thing with trying to navigate obedience isn't that God says, I love you, and now go off and do my commands. God pours out his love in us, and he gives us the tools on how to love. You see, in, um, I think it's Philippians 2.13, it says God works in us to help us to be willing to to be obedient. So it's not like we have to conjure up obedience. His spirit works in us to help us to do the right thing. And we get to partner with it. So there's no ball and chain. There's no having to follow a whole set of laws. Yes, we intend to pursue God and we do so and we have to partner with him. And we do have to make right decisions and they will hurt at times. But he gives us the power to do it. You see, we, I, you, you'll notice that when Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands, that verse I had up just before, do you know what he says immediately after that? He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, but I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He doesn't leave us as orphans. He gives us his Holy Spirit. I think this is what Paul was getting at when he said in Galatians, what I say is this, let the Spirit direct your lives and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. A lot of the issues of denying ourselves is us dying to the flesh. And so what we get to do, what we're invited to, as we see what love is through how the Father loves us, as we get to respond and say, yes, Lord, I will obey you, but give me the power to do so. And as we walk in partnership with him, we find ourselves doing what the Spirit does. That's what the Christian life is about. My final quote for the day is found from my favourite writer, Dallas Willard. And he says this when he is discussing the famous love chapter. You're probably wondering how I could do something on love and not mention 1 Corinthians 13, which is probably the most famous passage known on love. And um, I don't have it up here this morning, but 1 Corinthians 13 says something along the lines of love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not self-seeking. And there's more to it. In fact, you read that and you think, wow, that's love. And I used to read that thinking, wow, that's what I've got to be. But do you know what that scripture is telling us? It's telling us who God is. That's what God is. God is patient. God is kind. God is not self-seeking. He does not boast. He does not keep a record of wrongs. He loves you. And what Dallas Willard says, he says, as you ca- when he's discussing the scripture, he says, it's as we catch love, we catch love from God, by the way, we pursue love. As we catch love, we then find out that these things, after all, are being done by us because it's a work of the Spirit. So, how is your loving God going? What does God want from you? How is the laying side of your own interests going? It can be pretty tough sometimes. 
His love demands on one hand so much, and on on the other hand, it's such a free gift. And he gets to pour it in our hearts. Some people found Jesus' words on laying down your life is too hard and they walked away. You do actually have to count the cost and decide whether you're actually willing to take the journey. And yet, it's full of abundant life and full of hope and full of joy that um, it's a choice we get to make daily. So that's me, really. Shall we pray? Dean, do you have anything you want to add? No? So, Father, we just come before you this morning and we thank you for your love. Your love that has so much shown us who you are and how much you love us. And, Lord, we are just in need of your love. I pray that you'd help us to catch your love And Lord, as we catch your love, may others be catched, caught through us, that they too may come to know you and the wonderful, abundant love and life that you offer us. In Jesus' name, amen.